6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Job, chapters 32 through 37. I said, I will also answer my part. I also show mine opinion, for I am full of matter. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is, is as wine, which hath no vent. It is ready to burst like new bottles. I will speak that I may be refreshed. I will open my lips and answer. Let me not, I pray you, accept any man's person, neither let me give flattering titles unto man, for I know not to give flattering titles, and so doing my maker would soon take me away. Now he's going to turn. He's, he sort of dealt with those guys. He's going to, on chapter 33, turn to Job. But you can see him bursting forth. This guy is spirit-filled, driving, uh, indignant. Chapter 33, verse 1. Wherefore, Job, I pray thee, hear my speeches and hearken unto to all my words. Behold, now I have opened my mouth, my tongue hath spoken in my mouth. My word shall be of the uprightness of my heart, and my lips shall utter knowledge clearly. You're going to discover these words will be honest, impartial, and they will emerge from an from a anxious but humble heart. Verse 4, the Spirit of God hath made me, and the Spirit of the Almighty hath given me life. There it is, right there. If thou canst answer me, set thy words in order before me and stand up. Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. I am formed. I also am formed out of the clay. Behold, my terror shall not make me afraid, neither shall my hand be heavy upon thee. Which is in contrast to the three comforters were. Their hand, they were very heavy-handed and so on. Now he then now... Elihu starts to analyze Job's view of God. And anticipating what we're getting, I want you to notice, if you study the book of Job carefully, you'll discover Job's view of God changes. It goes through some strange evolutions. On the one hand, it opens up, you know, that the dust, I am but dust and ashes and so forth, it all sounds pretty good. But first thing you know, he's really upset. And he challenges God. And so forth. And, and his view of God is maturing from platitudes to depth to enlightenment. And Elihu's going to map that for us a bit. He's going to give us a whole clue to, the, to the, what the book is really all about. And uh, people say the book of Job is why do the innocent suffer? Why, you know, the, 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 you know the, it's all about suffering. If that's the case, it doesn't answer the question. It deals with that, but that's not the real issue. And that's going to be the main test in our last session. What is the book of Job really all about? Why does it read to all of us, even if we're not in pain? Well, the first problem, anyway, the Lahu tax is that Job sees God as capricious, acting out of his feelings like people do, according to his mood. You know, what's interesting, that is the position that Islam presents Allah in. Islam presents Allah as capricious. He can do anything. That's the opposite of the God of the Old Testament. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob delights in keep making and keeping promises. There are things he can't do. He can't violate his own nature. He can't be unjust, and so forth. 
So the, the very, and Job fall, has fallen into the trap of taking a view of God that's similar to the presentation of Allah by Islam. But let's move on. Verse 8. Surely thou hast spoken in mine hearing, and I have heard the voice of thy words saying, I am clean without transgression, I am innocent, neither is there any iniquity in me. Behold, he findeth occasions against me, and he counteth me for his enemy. He putteth my feet in stocks, he marketh all my paths. See, he's, he's summarizing what Job has been saying, that God seems to mistreat him without justification in some kind of capricious way. Now, Elihu's answer is not an argument from experience. It's just a declaration right to the point. Behold, in this thou art not just, I will answer thee, that God is greater than man. That's a simple statement, but we really need to understand that and remember that. This is the continual argument throughout the Bible from end to end. Let me quote from Romans 9, verses 20 through 22, where Paul says, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made, us, made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another to dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction, and goes on. That whole theme is Romans 9, and all through the scripture. That we must remember that God is greater than man. But now Elihu moves to the second problem Job has, and that's the matter of the silence of God. Job's so frustrated because he, he, he doesn't have any answer. It's, it's hard enough to endure pain. It's really more difficult when you don't know why you're enduring it. And he's really frustrated. Job, much of his previous remarks were directed to his frustration. He wasn't really trying to get out of the pain as much as trying to understand why. Because the ultimate pain for Job was not the, bore, the, the pus oozing from the, uh, his sores and all that stuff. It was the thought that he had become separated from God. That was Satan's final uh, twist to get Job to feel that way. Well, Elihu continues in verse 13, Why hast thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. You see, God doesn't need to give an account to man. It's part of what he's dealing with here. See, we all struggle with this one. We call it unanswered prayers. See, we fail to account for two things, God's timing and the style. We expect an answer to prayer right now. God, I need patience. Give it to me right now. <laughs> and we also don't allow for God's style. How is he going to answer us? You can go through the Bible and list a dozen different ways God answers prayers. Sometimes with earthquakes, sometimes with mighty winds, sometimes with a still small voice. We're all familiar that with, with Elijah. But there's times that each one of the ones that God didn't use there, he used elsewhere. So God is, he has his own style. And we often don't recognize it when it comes. So Elihu suggests just two ways. First, he talks about dreams. When I first ran into this, I thought, oh boy, are we going to get into dreams? You know, we all have our, you know, library on Freud and all that. Am I going to have to go do homework there? Nah. Verse 15. Elihu says, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men, in slumberings upon the bed, then he openeth the ears of men, that he, and sealeth their instruction, that he may withdraw man from his purpose, and hide pride from man. He keepeth back his soul from the pit, and his life from perishing by the sword. God uses dreams to warn us. 
according to the Scripture. See, one of God's objectives is to keep man from destroying himself. And one way he does this is is through dreams. Now, don't misunderstand me. Not all dreams come from God. But it's interesting, if you get into this area, even from the field of the psychological literature, they were quick to point out that often dreams are a way by which suppressed reality is brought into our consciousness, whether we like it or not. And I won't get into a whole subconscious thing here. I'll get all kinds of letters on that one. But uh, um, I'll make one footnote because I can anticipate some of the letters we're going to get. The subconscious is not attributed to Freud. Freud wrote a lot about it. It's interesting, one of my wife's books, which is very contrary to Freudianism, for lots of reasons, is attacked viciously by some would-be Christians, public commentators, that she's a Freudian because she mentioned the subconscious. Those people who make that claim haven't done their homework. The concept of Freud, or of, of dream, excuse me, subconscious goes way back to Augustine and before. And it's even in the, the hidden chambers in the temple speak of it. So there's a whole kind, and and there is and there is no competent debate about the fact that part of our memory is below the conscious level. That's all we're talking about. We're not talking about Freudianism. Freud had a lot of theories and wrote a lot about it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not embracing that. Don't misunderstand me. But to recognize the reality of the subconscious is simply uh, recognizing reality. How many of you have tried to remember someone's name and can't remember it? And maybe five or ten minutes later, without trying, it pops into your mind. A retrieval process going on that's below the conscious level. And it pops in, right? We've all done that. How many, anybody that has been struggling with a mathematics problem in college knows that one of the ways you solve it, that you, if it doesn't yield an analysis, you study it, put all the, th- all the aspects of it in your mind, and go take a nap. Bed at night or a nap, whatever, in the morning, often it just unravels clearly. And you have to experience that to realize that the mind has capabilities that are below the conscious level. And we go on and on, so I, I, don't, I don't waste all our time on that, but if you're really interested in this area, I encourage you to understand the architecture of the temple. Seven times in the New Testament, the Bible says you are the temple of God. Now it's using that in several different ways, but one of which we discover is that the architecture of the temple is a map of your software architecture all the way from the holy in a holy place, the spirit and the heart, all the way out to the outer court, the flesh, the soul, the soul and the flesh, um, the, the soul and the body together called the flesh. Um, and what's interesting, the tabernacle, the, their tabernacle is the same model, except the temple had two things that the tabernacle did not. It had the porch and the pillars, big bronze pillars, named Yachin uh, and Boaz in his counsel and his strength. We discover that's the volition what we call the will. And that's where the battles are fought. And if you really want to get into this, we have a briefing package called The Architecture of Man. But if you really want to get into it, the detailed background is in my wife's books where she redevelops this in very practical terms called The Way of Agape and, and its sequels. So I encourage you to get into that. And we'll talk, it talks about the hidden chambers and uh, what they really meant, these, these places where the priests hid their private secret idols and so forth. Had to be cleaned out before they could be... Anyway, so... Let's move on. See, I'm not suggesting here that we get into a course of interpreting dreams. But it's interesting that the scriptures are full of God speaking to men through dreams. Job referred to them earlier in chapter 7. Daniel also referred to that in the opening chapter of Daniel. Peter quoted scriptures 
which indicates, by the way, that I may have an advantage over you. In Acts 2.17, he quotes Joel 2.28, which talks about uh, young men seeing visions and old men dreaming dreams. So I have, a, I have an advantage on the dream side. Okay. Uh, but Abimelech in Genesis 20, Jacob in Genesis 30, Laban in Genesis 30, Joseph in Genesis 37, and his two cellmates, remember, they had that dream interpretation that, that propelled him ultimately to his career. And Pharaoh in his famous uh, seven-year visions. Gideon in Judges 7, Solomon in 1 Kings 3, Nebuchadnezzar twice, not only in Daniel 2, but also in Daniel 4. And Joseph, that is Mary's husband, had a dream three times God spoke to Joseph in dreams. And don't forget Pilate's wife. God spoke to her in dreams. So I'm not making a case except that God can use many different things, dreams being one of them. I think God can use an overheard conversation in a restaurant that you may misunderstand, but it, it will trigger the thought that God wants you to have. There's another way that God speaks to us, and that's through pain. Elihu goes on in verse 19. He has chastened also with pain upon his bed and with the multitude of his bones with strong pain, so that his life abhorreth bread and his soul dainty meat, and his flesh is consumed away that it cannot be seen. His bones that were not seen stick out, and his soul draweth near unto the grave and his life to the destroyers. What I was saying to Job, in effect, he's saying, Job, your very sufferings are speaking to you, but not as your so-called friends are suggesting. A threat to our life changes our entire value system instantly. Instantly. It's amazing that if you are hit dry ice on the S's here on I-95, and you spin on the dry ice, let's assume you don't hit anything, no damage is done. But boy, does that change your driving habits for maybe a few blocks anyway, you know. (laughs) C.S. Lewis explains this so eloquently in his famous work. He, He says, We can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities. And everyone who has watched Glutton shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can even ignore pleasure. But pain insists about being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to our consciousness, the consciousness, but he shouts in our pains. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That was, uh, let's see, I get the reference, yeah, the problem of pain that uh, he's famous for writing. Have you seen the movie Shadowlands that really deals with the development of that? Well, very well, Anthony Hopkins plays C.S. Lewis. Anyway, moving on. Well, I was going to go on and bring up a second point about pain. He says, If there be a messenger with him and an interpreter, one among a thousand, to show unto man his uprightness, then he is gracious unto him and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. Wow! Those few verses are a summary in advance of the whole gospel. Here by Elihu, by the Holy Spirit, given to Job. What is he talking about here? A messenger with him. 
interpreter, one in a thousand, to show unto man his uprightness. Then, then he is gracious unto him and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Oh, really? His flesh shall be fresher than child's. He shall return to the days of his youth and so on. We're talking here about being born again through the role and involving a ransom and a mediator. Let's move on. See, there's a light growing in Job's heart. In chapter 9, Job could cry out, there is no umpire. Use the word daysman in the, in the King James, but there's no umpire between us that can lay his hand upon us both, man and God. Oh, really? Sure there is. He came later, of course. Then chapter 16, Job goes on and says, he declares, even now behold my witnesses in heaven and he who vouches for me is on high. See his insights growing. Chapter 19, he declares, this is the great one for me. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand on that latter day upon the earth. And though after my, my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Declaration of the Old Testament of the bodily resurrection. Fabulous piece. And now, and then verse 23, he says, uh, he realized, he knows the way that I take. He, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. So Job has come all the way to realize, mediator, and he also articulates the fact that he's going to, at the end, after the mediator guides him, he will be restored. Anyway, moving on to verse 26. Elihu can do this. He shall pray unto God, and he shall be favorable unto him. He shall see his face with joy. He shall render unto man his righteousness. He looketh upon men, and if they say, any say, I have sinned and perverted that which was right, and profit me not, he will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. See, pain did that. So, so Elihu now exhorts Job, Lo, all these things worketh God oftentimes with man to bring back his soul from the pit to be enlightened with the light of the living. Mark well, O Job, hearken unto me and hold thy peace and I will speak. If thou hast anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify thee. If not, hearken unto me, hold thy peace and I shall teach thee wisdom. Now Job's silence here indicates Job is now ready to listen. And when Elihu finishes... God Himself will pick up the, the the ball from there. He'll be, and we shall see. Now, his next this next chapter, chapter thirty four, basically Elihu's message is your God, your God is too small. Verse one. Furthermore, Elihu answered and said, "Hear my words, O ye wise men, give ear unto me, ye that have knowledge, for the ear trieth the words, as the mouth tasteth meat. And let us choose choose to us judgment. Let us know among ourselves what is good." Now he's going to re-examine Job's view of God in detail, inviting everybody, that's us, to pay attention and to join in judgment. Verse 5, For Job had said, I am righteous, and God hath taken away my judgment. Should I lie against my right, my wound is incurable without transgression. See, part of Job's problem is he sees God as unjust, unfair, and unwilling to explain what's going on. That's Job's perceptions here. Elihu continues, verse 7, What man is like Job who drinketh up scorning like water? Which goeth in the company with the workers of iniquity and walketh with wicked men? For he's, he hath uh, said, I, It profiteth a man nothing that he should delight himself with God. That's a strange statement from the man who began with, Lord, the Lord gave, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That was chapter 1, if you recall. See, now Job is, seems to have adopted the the uh, same attitude as the ungodly. What advantage is it to me to say to behave myself? I might as well have sinned. That argument is going to now be examined in detail. See, Satan declared that he would bring Job to the place where he would curse God to his face. 
And to do that first, he has to make Job distrust God and feel that he's been treated unfairly before he'll curse God to his face. And that's, that's Remember, that was Satan's announced goal way back in chapter 1. So God's intervening here by wise words from a spirit-filled young man to keep Job from that final fatal step. So from chapters 10 through about 30, Elihu now takes up the truth about God's character. First, God is a just rewarder. He cannot be unjust. Verse 10, Therefore hearken unto me, ye men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. Any time that you pray, you open yourself to God and you put a reservation on that. Gee, God, I'll go anywhere you ask except California. Or whatever, okay. Every time you do that, you're declaring that you don't trust God to know best what's, for, what's best for you. See, anytime you put a, a restriction on an answer to prayer, you're not trusting Him. Your prayer really should be, Thy will be done. Whatever it is, God, I'm ready. No restrictions. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, or from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. For the work of a man shall he render unto him, and cause every man to find according to his ways. Yea, surely God will not do wickedly, neither will the Almighty pervert judgment. And by the way, no matter how long it'll take, God will do it. Second point is God is a sovereign authority. God is beyond accountability to man. Verse 13, Who hath given him a charge over the earth? Who hath disposed the whole world? If he has set his heart upon man, if he gather unto himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh shall perish together, and man shall turn again unto dust. Now, he's certainly not accountable to anybody. Certainly not man is the point. The third point is God is the impartial ruler of the universe. He goes on here, verse 16. If now thou hast understanding, hear this, hearken to the voice of my words. Shall even he that hateth right govern? Excuse me, he that hateth right govern? And wilt thou condemn him that is most just? Is it fit to say to a king, Thou art wicked, and to princes, ye are ungodly? How much less to him that accepteth not the persons of princes, nor regardeth the rich more than the poor? For they are all the work of his hands. In a moment they shall die, and the people shall be troubled at midnight, and pass away, and the mighty shall be taken away without hand. <laughs> it's interesting. Those who prate the most loudly about justice never hesitate to offer flattery <laughs> to rulers uh, 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 to partiality. Anyway, the fourth point, God is an omniscient judge. He knows everything. There's no investigating committee required for God. Verse 21, For his eyes are upon the ways of man, and he seeth all his goings. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. For he will not lay upon man more than right. He should enter into judgment with God. He shall break in pieces mighty men without number and set others on their, in their stead. And by the way, here in your notes, just put Psalm 139. In the interest of time, I won't go there. You can just insert Psalm 139 here, which basically God knows our thoughts before they take place, before they take shape. God is outside the time domain. All these paradoxes emerge because we view them from within the time domain. Recognize God is not physical. He's outside. Time is a physical property. He's outside time. Not somebody who has lots of time. He is somebody outside time. He knows the end from the beginning. So he knows your thoughts even before they take shape in your, in your heart. Anyway, the next point is he, God is the absolute executor. 
Verse 25, Therefore he knoweth their works, and he overturneth them in the night, so that they are destroyed. He striketh them as wicked men in the open sight of others. Because they are turned back from him, he would not consider any of his ways. That's the root issue, by the way. Because they would not consider any of his ways. That's the real root problem. Verse 28, So they cause the cry of the poor to come to him, and they heareth the cry of the afflicted. And when he giveth quietness, who can make trouble? And when he hideth his face, who can behold him? And whether it be done against a nation or against a man only? that the hypocrite reign not, and that the less the, that people be ensnared. Surely it is meet to be said unto God, I have be borne chastisement, I will not offend any more. That which I see not, teach thou me. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Should it be according to thy mind, he will recompense it, whether thou, they, thou refuse or whether thou choose. And not I, therefore speak what thou knowest. See, it's not reform that God is after. He desires repentance and relationship. He wants you to surrender the right to run your own life. He'll accept no other basis for relationship. God has given you free will. God has given you sovereignty, and that's a scary thing when you understand it. The smartest thing you can do with it is give it right back. Give it right back. Verse 34, Let men of understanding tell me, and let a wise man hearken unto me. Job hath spoken without knowledge. His words were without wisdom. My desire is that Job may be tried unto the end because of his, of his answers for wicked men. For he addeth rebellion unto his sin. He his, clappeth his hands among us and multiplied his words against God. See, Job is a righteous man. His heart is right. God vindicated him right up front in this, this whole book. He wants to serve God. But he thinks he can do it by his own efforts. That's the other root problem dealing with here. And the toughest problem or lesson that God would teach us is to see evil in what we think is good. Teach us that evil, what we think is evil, is nothing, is, is nothing but good. In what we think is nothing but good. Our best is as filthy rags. Remember Isaiah 64, 6. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. And you know what the Hebrew really says. We went through that last time, didn't we? Our righteous life is like used menstrual cloths. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Job. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music